I just lied all the time to myself about it's fine. This is the way the world is. You can deal with it. There's just so many levels. That was Claire Spencer, co-founder of Water. She came on the podcast this week to talk about Water's mission, as well as how we can just make our world a little bit of a better place. I will warn you, there is a tiny little bit of profanity in this episode. So keep that in mind. Without further ado, let's get to Becoming Legendary with Claire Spencer. Maximize every opportunity so that you can become you legendary. Can become legendary. What adjustments can you make right now to make yourself one percent better? Your only goal is to be the best version of you. Claire, thank you so much for coming on Becoming Legendary. How are you today? I'm great, Patrick. How are you doing? So, so good. So let's jump right in. What does a typical day in your life look like? That's like a really, really great question. Um, I have done one thing consistently for 10 days, and that is squeeze a cold plunge mm, in. Good work. But otherwise, yeah, it's been amazing. And But even that is, you know, sometimes at 7 a.m., sometimes in the middle of the day, and sometimes right before they close. So I have an alternating custody agreement with my daughter's father. We get along, thank thankfully. So half the time I have my daughter, which means that half of the mornings are spent about like an hour of blissful fun time and still like an hour of dragging feet and trying to get her ready to go to camp. And then um, I have a day job. I do marketing for a team in luxury real estate and I go there. And then I have a business, um, which is selling water that is an intention practice. And I usually, depending on the day, will devote between 20 minutes and two hours on all the different aspects of that business. And then, you know, exercise, mindfulness, laundry, food doesn't always get done. So I I don't really have a scheduled day. I think that's an interesting, as I talk to more and more entrepreneurs, I think probably one of our, our, I'll include myself in that, uh, greatest assets is that like lack of necessity for schedule. And one of our greatest hindrances is the lack of necessity for schedule. Um, <laughs> absolutely. It's like, I can be fine, but it's not actually, I'm not really fine. Yeah. 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 It's like we, if we really, there's some depth to that. So I want to get there, but let's, Let's circle back to that point. I want to first find out you're the co-founder of Water, correct? Correct. Can you tell me, just give me the brief description of, of what Water is. Water is plain purified water. It's not about the water, actually. It's about the practice that we have facilitated through the packaging. So... That practice is a mindfulness practice where you set an intention and you write it on the side of your water bottle so that you can remember throughout the day what you'd like to embody, who you'd like to be, where you'd like to be emotionally, mentally, or physically, so that that stays top of mind. Hydration and mindfulness. Yeah. Two, two Two nice things that we can all use a little more of. Yeah, and 
I may pre-ask it, but it, for me, it came out of a necessity to find a mindfulness practice that was always accessible. Yeah. Um, it takes about two seconds to one minute to set an intention. Um, we actually have a lot of suggested words on the front for the days where you just feel fried and you can just pick the word that speaks to you that day. But, um, there's no day that I don't drink water. <laughs> That's a good thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> right. And like, you don't have to get a babysitter to go to water class. If your kid is crawling all over you, you can still drink water. If somebody is yelling at you or you're in the movie theater and people are being annoying, you can still drink water. It's, it's always like, it's a very accessible way to prompt yourself to stay mindful, um, in whatever situation you're in. I think it's a really, it's a really interesting way to make, make awareness accessible to people because people are carrying around water bottles everywhere they go. There's also a lot to water, which I think is really important. So I, I want to dive, I want to dive, I want to dive more in, <laughs> into that concept and how that came from, uh, or where that came from. You were first conceptualizing this. What was the thing that really clicked for you that made you know this was something you wanted to follow? Sure. So I didn't actually conceptualize it. <clears throat> I'll put that right out there. I was friends, my friend Kristen, a very good friend of mine, she had been giving me various business opportunities for almost a year. That year was my year of no, and I kept turning her down. I was recently divorced. I had to do some serious consideration about what I was going to do next. So I was totally freaked out all the time. We could just call it elevated cortisol, whatever you prefer. And she did a lot, a Facebook live based off the work of Dr. Emoto in Japan, which we can talk about later. And in this Facebook live, I should say also that she's an intuitive healer and a coach. She took a water bottle and a Sharpie and she talked about her own self-talk and how she would like to make it better and she was committing to believing it. And she wrote down her I am statement on the side of her water bottle with a Sharpie and um, shared that practice. And people started to send her their water bottles that they had put a Sharpie on with their own personal statements. And the next time I saw her, which I think was within one or two days, she said, Claire, do you want this? do you think that this should be a business? And right then and there, I saw it on like every single seat of a Tony Robbins conference where yes, everybody to get quiet and send intention for the weekend. I said, yep, done. Because it also, it spoke to me. Like I have a little kid meditating. She didn't sleep past 530 AM until the past year. So all of those challenges that I talked about before were my actual challenges. Yeah. Not to mention being really locked into my like sort of this fear state. I didn't have, a, I didn't have the wherewithal or access to my um, frontal cortex to make good decisions or to make decisions. I was worn out often because I just didn't have, I don't know what else to say it besides like I didn't have flow between my decision-making brain. My little snake brain was running everything all the time. And so it took a tremendous amount of effort to make decisions and to do things and to set goals. And so mindfulness, the idea of having to get a babysitter so that I could go to yoga class and do all of those things. It was like, where am I going to get the money? How am I going to find the babysitter? Then I have to schedule it. 
now that I feel better, it's not a big deal. But at the time that was enough work that I said, no, you know, I'll just stay home and I won't do that self-care thing that I really needed to do. It was just, it was beyond my capacity. I was looking for a job. I was looking for a house. There were so many other things that were way more important that, um, it felt overwhelming to do something that simple. Ah, way more important, more important than you. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's those, it's the big things that were unchunkable for me at the time. Yeah. And I think that now I can see the priorities, but at the time, again, like when we're in that fear state, we just don't have access to our, to our um, thinking brain. So it feels always like the sky's about to drop. Yeah. If I don't get a job right now, I'm going to die. I didn't get a job for six or eight months. I didn't die. But every single day I woke up feeling panicked that I didn't get a job or I didn't have a job, mm. if that makes sense. So it wasn't so much that I didn't understand conceptually that self-care is important. It was I this other thing was looming and I couldn't let go of it because it was so scary. One of the things that water really talks about is that you, as a being, are the creator of your reality. Absolutely. I want to know... Actually, I want to know this, because I think this is, a, this is a fundamental question that helps society out a lot. Reality. Is, uh, is reality... Is, is there a universal reality, a universal shared reality, or is reality... Um, the, the reality owned by the individual perspective. I'm going to give an annoying answer and say both. Yeah. I think it's right. Yeah. So if you want to, I am not a quantum physicist, but uh, because this is my business, I toe dip into it. Um, in the quantum physics realm, it turns out and we could, I, there's a scientific American article that I can find the link to that the concept of, reality and matter works best if we take ownership of the idea that we have created matter with our own mind with like the energy of our mind has created matter and that's how it exists in the world but not as individuals as a community consciousness matter exists because we've all almost agreed that it exists Mm -hmm. And that is the best explanation for the way that like the atoms and light and all of the matter in the world interacts with each other is that we invented it as a community thought process or like it's, it's like, it's an agreed upon community experience. However, for sure we as humans create our own reality every single second, because we interpret the community created experience through our own brain. <laughs> I'm not quite sure if I'm explaining it well, but no, thank you. I no think matter you're what. It well. Yeah. I, so, so this is, I think, I actually think the answer to way more questions than we would be, I think we'd be shocked at the amount of questions where the answer is both. Um, and there's, there's a lot, there's, there's just a lot to that, but I, I want to try to stay really specific on this reality thing for a moment. Um, I do think that there is, there's a, there's a requirement. I think that there's, I don't know if requirements are the right word, but I think there is a, there's a shared ownership 
of a universal reality that uh, the universal reality is created by the meetings of our own individual perspectives. What I mean by that is, let's say you and I are sitting across a table and we're looking at each other. Um, my, my perspective is a visualization of you and the things that are behind you and what's going on behind you. And your perspective is a visualization of me and the things that are going on behind me. Somewhere in the infinitely perfect place that is between you and me, there is a moment, there's a space, there's a physical space where those two perspectives meet. And that would be the reality that exists between you and I sitting across the table in a conversation. Where I think, where I think that idea actually needs to gain more validity is I do think it matters uh, how we're working with our individual perspectives um, and where we're pushing, in which direction we're pushing. Are we pushing closer to the universal reality, which is the meeting ground, or are we pushing farther away? And I think one of the things that's happening in society is because we are so uh, desiring to be protective of people's individual right to have thoughts, we are allowing for validity um, of perspectives that are not equally equal distances from the universal reality and giving them equal weight. And I think that creates a societal shift towards disruption that I think we're experiencing right now. I think it fits in exactly, exactly with what you said. Um, but I think, I think the missing piece of this is how we really need to be crediting individuals who are working to get closer to a universal reality um, and really calling people out who are trying to pull society away from a universal reality and just boldly lying um, about experience and, and shifting and shifting mass groups of people away from from what is real. And I think we're experiencing that currently in the in the political world on a global space, not just in the United States. It might be more terrifying for us in the United States because we're here and we're under that rule. But globally, you're seeing that same shift away from a universal reality and, and more towards this disruptive chaos. Can you, can A, can you just, what do you think that's happening globally? And, and if I'm wrong, pull me back, pull me back towards, towards reality. I'm thinking, <clears throat> I think what I'm stuck on, and this may be an unpopular opinion, is um, I don't think you're incorrect. I also don't believe that chaos and moving away is inherently bad because I see it as a step. I see it as a step forward also in the same way that it's revealing the flaws or the leaks in what we're trying to do. Um, if, if, and then again, like here I am creating reality as much as I see the suffering and discord that this, that this lying and this not being in truth and inciting other people to, towards being that way causes. It has also caused a tremendous amount of people to be motivated to step towards truth. It's um, this woman. Yeah. There's a woman that I really like. She's a meditation teacher named to be at Simkin. And this would be, I think what she would call the third law or the law of three. And that's the idea that any, forward movement will be met 
with equal pushback and that the way to not get stuck in being upset about the pushback is to understand it as a lesson and information to continue on the path. It's naturally going to be part of the process of moving towards what you said is a universal reality. It's almost like we can't get there without being pushed back a bit. And it's a blessing because now we have a better insight into where we're going. Mm. I think you're right. A forest fire is not great for the animals in the forest currently, but over the long run, the forest fire offers nutrients to the forest and, and things can, can grow and flourish. However, I also don't think it's necessary to have a forest fire, right? Like, we don't necessarily need to burn down society to fix society. We could also just start being decent humans. And to give ourselves that, like, escape of, like, yeah, things are terrible, but, you know, we got to get terrible so we can get better is, in in many ways, it's a cop-out of our for our species, right? It's like we don't need to destroy the planet we're on so that we can figure out, oh, we should terraform another planet so that we can not destroy a planet. <laughs> I think that I don't, I don't agree that it's, I don't, I don't believe that, um, you watch the pushback and don't respond to it. I, at least in my own experience is if I'm prepared for it, then I'm able to continue to move forward with less anger and pain and more calm certainty. Mm. It's, there's a quote that's been used a lot in a podcast I listen to, and it's probably incorrectly attributed to Winston Churchill, where he says, if you stop and st- throw stones at every dog that barks, you'll never make it to your destination. Um, and those are clearly for smaller things, but I think it can also apply to us on a bigger scale, is if we want to move towards a universal consciousness, being reactive towards people inciting reactivity is in a way throwing stones when we could look and get the information we need. And if we are a non-reactive space, we can say, okay, thank you for showing me that we are missing an opportunity for an invitation or we have alienated people through our language and that's why they're going through you or we could be better. Like if, if that person or if that organization is appealing to humans, and again, this depends on your own idea of reality is I don't, I don't believe that people choose to be lazy. I don't believe that human beings choose to be angry or abusive. I think we're taught those things. And I think that we are incited to fear and that's why those behaviors come about. But in the core of core, human beings don't, how should I put this? A person raised in love doesn't act that way. But we can't raise every single person in the whole world. So what do we do when we encounter somebody who's been raised in fear or abuse? Um, do we tell them that they're shitty because they are perpetuating it? Do we disregard them from society? Or do we find a way to invite them to be just a little bit better? And I would prefer to think that we can learn, you know, what the motivations are and to understand people who are tempted towards this chaotic way. Maybe not the leaders. I do think there's like a limit to like where you want to put your energy, but find somebody who's not quite where you are and invite them to be just a little bit better. I would agree. I would agree. I think that everyone should be doing that. And 
We still don't like, I think the reality is everyone wants to be happy. We all have different ideas of how, how happiness will manifest in our lives, right? And how we, how we're able to create happiness, but everyone wants to be happy. They want to, they want to enjoy the experience that they're having. And everyone wants to get better in some way, right? Everyone's trying to improve in some way. That might be making more money. That might be just flat out being happier. That might be being kinder. That might be being more powerful. That like there's there's lots of different things that we're all trying to do to bring um, what we ex- what we feel is expansion to our experience. That's inherent in humans. I really think that's inherent in humans. This desire to expand. Would you agree with that? Yes. If that's true, we don't need the the negative to have that that spark. Right? We're that is inherent in the core of being a human. As far as I can tell from every single human I've ever I've ever had the opportunity to interact with, they're always working on expansion in some way. So if we can just figure out Right. And practical, practical, how that happens, practically how that happens, it probably requires what you're saying is this really impactful, sharp edge that can start to cut through the societal BS that has fogged things up so that you more people can see the direction we're going. But I don't think that's a requirement. I think that's a deductive way of looking at this is saying that we need that sharp edge to get everyone going in the direction that we want to go. I think there are there are bigger ways that this can be done, um, and maybe that goes right back to the concept of I- empowering people to be more aware, to have more mindfulness, and and maybe that starts with just making a simple intention of of bettering your life through positivity. When you you started talking about, and I think this goes right into what we were talking about, you started talking about the amount of energy that you were spending making decisions, which I think is a thing that a lot of humans experience. How taxing is or was decision making on your day to day life? You know, it depends on the decision. I would say that when I was, and it depends on the outward stressors. And um, are you familiar with decision fatigue? Um, I am familiar with concepts similar to decision fatigue. I think the the way I've heard it best is that um, decisions are taxing to the degree that you have the resources to make them. You are taxed by make having to make numerous decisions, but for example, if losing fifty cents or spending a dollar fifty is the difference between you know walking an hour home or taking the bus or having dinner. And your day is filled with those types of decisions, aka the decisions that people living in poverty have to make regularly, your day is going to be much more fatiguing. Whereas if you have a life where you can lose $20 in the pocket of your jeans and not know it and find it again in a month and be excited, your daily decisions, you can probably make a lot more decisions because the consequences are not as big. However, I do think that decisions overall, we find ways to make fewer decisions and it is, and that's how we become more efficient because it is tiring to make decisions. I have entire systems for making decisions so that I don't get too tired making decisions. That's interesting. Wow. Can you run me through, is it possible to run me through one of, one of those systems? Yeah. Um, one of them is, I call it like three choices, B plus or better. And it's the one that I use the most. It's 
if I need to choose something, I find instead of exhaustively researching, I find three things that I think are are at least a B plus or better, and I pick one of them because I know that at least for me, I will get completely overwhelmed by a hundred things and trying to find the number one thing. I want something that will be better than just average and good enough and to make that decision and to move on. And if I need something better than that, I can revisit it. But it's more important for me to make the decision. Got it. Interesting. And then I don't worry if I've picked the best one because I know that any of those three is good enough. This is a question from a point of ignorance. What do you, what's the big fear? So let's take the financial component out of making decisions because I can easily understand the financial component. Aside from finances, what are the big, like, what's the big fear about making the wrong decision? For me personally or in theory? I'll take both. So for me personally, I don't have a lot of attachment to being wrong in my decisions um, unless there's financial consideration. The decisions that are scary to me are financial commitments or career related. And that's a weighty decision because it affects my feeling of safety in the world. Even though I can probably fuck those up really good and still be safe in the world. It's that perception. And that's um, especially magnified because I have a daughter to take care of. Even though she has many people who would love her, I would like I would feel very ashamed if I was a destitute mother unable to care for her financially. Um, And I think that making the wrong decision on a larger scale in my experiential, but not, you know, degree and opinion comes back always to shame and that decisions are hard because if you make the wrong shame, but if you make the wrong choice, you have, publicly shown that you don't know or you have lost money or you picked the wrong person or all of those things i think the core feeling right there is shame that totally makes sense and so i suppose you know the anxiety around decisions is correlated to your tolerance for shame and or your ability to transmute it and to not have shame around those things That was very insightful for me. I appreciate that so much. I definitely understand the concept of like (sighs) splitting hairs on the decision fatigue, but like fatigue around discipline. So discipline fatigue, right? I'm I'm missing that exact word there, but there's a, there's a close, there's a close proximity and I definitely understand that. But as far as decisions, I've never I've never had I've never had any doubt in decisions I've made because they've always been like real and true to me and I make decisions from a real and true place. So even if they end up being like the worst thing ever, it was the decision that felt best for me in that moment. It wasn't the wrong decision, it was the decision I made. And I there's no shame for me in making the wrong decision. It's just like, oh that's a thing that happened and now I'm over here where I used to be over there. And part of that might be because I've never really felt like I'm going anywhere. I'm not trying to win any races. So there's no destination for me other than dust, the same destination that we all get to. So it's interesting. I've agonized over watching people like try to make a decision about ordering food. And it's really hard for me to watch somebody struggle to make a decision 
because the worst case scenario for me is you pick some food that you didn't like and then you either eat food that wasn't the most amazing thing for that moment or you could get more food. There's always that option too. So I really appreciate you kind of laying that out and I think that my understanding of that will be greatly impacted by that thought process. So thank you. Yeah. I think also, and you know, without knowing about your childhood, I know that my parents are lovely. I had a nice house, but you, my therapist says that nobody makes through childhood unscathed. So I know that as the oldest child of three children, I can still remember with crystal clear several incidences where I made the wrong choice and I was punished for it. Mm. And I think that many people experience some sort of trauma when they're in childhood along those lines, which means that in a really psycho, like in a psychological way, like when you're a little kid, you depend on your parents to live. So if they're unhappy with you, you could die like very snake brain stuff. Mm -hmm. So Our brains are these incredible pattern making machines. Thank God, because I would hate to have to like look at a thousand leaves to figure out that there's a tree, right? I just see a tree. So we get these patterns wired in when we're kids. And I think it's not an uncommon experience for people to be criticized or feel as a child with an un, like an inability to see the whole picture for making a wrong decision. And then as we grow up, we're taught or we deduce that it is very important to never be wrong. It's a side effect of these childhood experiences that then become wired in our programming. And it doesn't have to be a large experience. It just has to be one or two times where this idea that making mistakes threatens your relationship with your parents or your, the person who gives you life. Mm. And that threat or that perceived threat from the childhood thing transforms into a feeling that you are, that screwing up and making the wrong decision is a life or death situation. So you get these amygdala responses to something really what you, you and I would think is silly salad. What do you want on your salad? Yeah. But for somebody who's wired that way, it doesn't matter because it's this unconscious programming and their cortisol shoots up. And then they have fewer decision-making capacities. Like it's their decision-making capacities reduced, which makes it harder, which makes it scarier. Yeah. And it's just salad. Yeah. It is very sad. It's very, very hard to, you shouldn't, you, that should not be a struggle for people. That is a, that's too much of a burden to, to carry with you every single decision as if they're life or death. Yeah. It's so unconscious though. And it's obviously to varying degrees, but, um, so unconscious and there are so many things to become conscious about we we really have to choose what we want right Mm. what are the things that hold us back the most ah making it yeah i I think that choosing what you want is a really it's the key to finding happiness really being willing to commit and and recognize the things that you want and and also know that by recognizing them and by bringing them to your reality the truth is that you might not get them i think that's a big part of why people are so scared to acknowledge the things that they want in life because everyone knows what they want 
It's it's you're you are the foremost expert of the seven and a half billion people on the planet. No one knows what you want more than you. But bringing those ideas into your conscious thought process is sometimes so terrifying for people just because of the fact that by doing that, there's the reality that you might not get them. And that I think holds more people back than pretty much anything else that I've that I've ever seen. I want to go back to to this concept of childhood for you. So when you were 16, who did who did you think you were going to become? You're you're um what is it? You're hitting the nail. I don't remember. I was an artist. I almost went to an art college. Half my applications were to art schools and half were to traditional schools. Um and the funny thing is that when you said you are the expert on yourself, the work that I've really had to do dive into recently is to stop trying to control the process and pursue my interests in a way that's not worrying about the outcome. So instead of saying, I want to be a great artist, I say, I really enjoy doing art. And so that's (laughs) going to be my pursuit. Because if you ask me what I want to do with Mm -hmm. my life, I want to puke in a bucket and never answer that question. If you ask me what I love, I can answer it. Mm -hmm. So I have had to release a lot about what I'm supposed to do and be because that has led me down many an unsatisfying path and start to really take small steps. And instead of listening to the big should or what do you want, start listening to like what what do you love does this one thing bring you joy mm. could you would you like to do it tomorrow would you like to do it tomorrow tomorrow yeah there's so I, much so much power in that yeah and what i what i believe is that the things that i want i have in many ways which is financial security and like love and joy in my life would i like more of them yes so if I continue to pursue the things that I enjoy, the opportunity to have more financial abundance, more joy, more love in my life will reveal them through that way. As long as I remember that that's what I want. Mm. But saying, oh, I want to be rich. I want a hot husband. And I want to laugh every day. Like there's no pathway to get there that's really abundantly clear. But I think if we can... It's not, it's like, like having those ambitions and desires isn't wrong, but I think the way to get there is by listening to these things that give us joy and seeing how it aligns with those goals Mm. and finding windows for the both of them to flow together. Yeah. Yeah. There's something to that. I think that's a really good call out is that a lot of people feel like the things that they want are wrong, right? It's like, it's, it's shameful. And I think right back to your word, shameful to want to, be wealthy. Uh, it's shameful to want to not work all the time. Like there, there are things that there are things that are just like kind of common, co- common denominal desires that people are ashamed to admit are their own desires. And that is an interesting part of human experience. So I, I really, I really appreciate the perspective, those perspectives that you shared. There, those are those are really insightful. When you look back at when you look back at becoming the person you are today, has there been 
a really key mentor or influence on you? Hundreds. Hundreds. <clears throat> um, I'm, I would say that four, I think people right now have had a huge influence on my life. It's three people in a program. One would be my ex-husband. It was, you know, really terrible to be married for a long time. And the divorce was really terrible. But I am so grateful because I would not have learned the lesson that I needed to learn to be really happy without that experience. Mm. And um, he was with me through it and he gave it to me. So I would n- not get married ever again. But I, without without that, I think that I would still be what I think of as like a habitual liar. Mm. Not like just like a, it's, I just lied all the time to myself about it's fine. This is the way the world is. You can deal with, there's just so many levels. I mean, I could talk about lying for another hour and a half, but so I'm very grateful to him. Um, he forced me to learn a lot about myself that I didn't want to. <laughs> yeah. Um, Relationships yeah. have a way of doing that when they end. Yeah. So for sure him and um, my business partner has gone on her own journey to really coming out as a very intuitive healer type from a very traditional family. And I've seen on an interpersonal level, I've seen her go through waves of fear and anxiety and also stepping up and feeling them and moving through them. Um, both in theory and also I've been to her house when she's broken down in tears or been in a state of fear and just worked through it. So being so close to somebody who's doing this really incredible journey has been hugely impactful. Um, and then there is the meditation teacher, Viet Simkin. She teaches, I'm going to totally butcher the, she teaches this, I don't know what else to call it besides like a way of being in the world that's based on this man, Gurdjieff, his theory or his philosophy, 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 called the fourth way. And it's the idea that there's an intersection between spiritual life and human life. Human life is like diapers and car payments and showering every day, even though you showered yesterday. And then there's the spiritual line which is attained by monks and ascetics, but that you can be on both of them at the same time. Mm -hmm. You can have your human experience and still be spiritually aligned with a divine. And that's been hugely influential for me because I always really wanted a human experience. I love my human experience. Um, And I would never be a monk, but I've always also felt called to this spiritual way of living in the world. And then I'm part of um, sort of like a soul mastermind with about 120, 150 other people. And it's everything from like cold showers to mind work to relationships. It's, it's the whole gamut, but just being in a larger cohort of people in the universe that are interested and committed and not on the same path, but committing to like walking beside each other in a certain way for this year has been very empowering for me because loneliness can make you doubt yourself and knowing that they exist actually in the world, I believe has 
put me in a vibrational level where I'm attracting similar people in Phoenix. <laughs> and those four things have really transformed me mm. recently. I love that. I love that. Those are those are really fun transformations. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm in the middle of all of it, but aren't we always? We're always in right. the middle of all of it from the first breath to the last. Yeah, absolutely. Constant expansion. Mm. And then this goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning is that is it an individual experience or a group experience? I was having my individual experience, but the confirmation of the group experience has empowered my individual experience. Mm. Oh, that is so that is so interesting. It's that that uh, communal aspect um, and that that confirmation is it's just another thing that I've only recently become aware of. (laughs) And um, there's so much appreciation and impact that can come from really uh, connecting to, to people in, in those ways. And I would say I can, I can speak from experience on this and my brain just works really differently than, than most brains. So my, my experience is really different than, than everyone that I've, found so far on this planet in that i don't i truly don't need the societal reinforcement to be exactly where i am in my in my space however just because i don't need it doesn't mean it doesn't have an immense value and i have only i've only come to realize the value really in the last year because i didn't have that that need that even that really that want to get societal reinforcement, I've not appreciated that in the way that I wish I I would have. And now that I have that appreciation, it really changes the way that I show up in the world. So I think that I think that for the one other person on this planet whose brain works like mine, even if you don't have that desire for societal reinforcement, find it. (laughs) find it because it's that it really does impact how how you exist and that that i think is it's such a beautiful thing to integrate into we are we are societal creatures there's no doubt about it a childhood friend's father is a clinical psychologist and he does really incredible work with babies he's he he did it's called the still face experiment and the idea is that he was studying the effects of drug abuse and depression in mothers on babies. So he asked mothers to interact with their baby normally, and then he asked them to not respond the way that somebody who was high or on drugs or um, depressed would not be responsive. And th- of course, the babies became very upset because no- there was no way for them as sort of primal, unformed beings to know that they existed. Mm. Like there's, if the mother didn't interact how do you know that you exist? And his research has gone further and further diving into that. But um, he's always interested me because he says that we need human, other human beings because without them, how, like, how do we know that we exist? If somebody can't share the shared experience of reality, then there's no litmus test for us to know that what we're experiencing exists. I don't know if it makes sense what i'm saying i can he's got a really couple really great articles in youtubes but um in some ways or my dad who's also a psychologist he'd say people are people people 
And it's this idea that even if you don't need other humans intellectually or emotionally, you will benefit from them and those relationships will benefit you. For sure. Even if, even if it's a, a little bit of a charged negative one, you will still grow from that. And the reflection of somebody else who has a consciousness as complex as your own is one of the few ways to learn and also be validated that you exist. Mm. Otherwise, you are just dust anyways. You're not moving towards being dust. You are dust. You are dust. Literally, you are dust, right? We're just a collection of of nutrients that we've gathered and made into these little heaps that we mobilize and dance around the surface of the planet for a little while and then nutrients. So even even as a being interacting in society, we're just a collection of, of soon-to-be dust, wet dust. Last Last two questions for you. Number one. What's the closest thing to real magic that you've ever experienced? Like being alive. <laughs> Literally being alive. It's such a blessing. I, I, there's nothing. I love my daughter and I'm so grateful for what she taught me, but being alive is even more magic than that. Yeah, it's true. It's amazing. It's amazing. Every, every single breath is just such a beautiful opportunity that we just should appreciate the heck out of. Wow. Ah, my last question for you. Do you have any questions for me? I do, but I was going to save that for my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You can repeat questions. (laughs) Even if the Venn diagram is 90% overlap. What about those 10? I'm I'm going to ask you my favorite three questions that I like to ask to, to strangers. Okay. What is the best thing that happened to you this week? Am I, am I just getting one and then going? I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. The best thing that happened to me this week is I um I really had the opportunity to show up for some people who were in pain. And I I really I really believe that there are that it is more important to help people up than it is to catch them while they're falling. So what I mean by that is Oftentimes when, when we're experiencing something that is uncomfortable, the easiest thing for us to feel is support and support happens underneath us. Most often when people are approaching someone who's in pain, the thing they're trying to do is support them. And I always try to keep in mind that every being on this planet has as much support as they ever need right below us. And gravity is constantly bringing us to that support. So when I connect with someone in need, I am always trying to see what I can do to help rocket them forward, to help bring them this vision or idea or even this little glimpse of what might be possible from where they are. And when given that opportunity, you really have a you really have you really have the capacity to make impact and that happened a few times this week and it's just there's nothing that there's nothing that makes me feel more at home than that i love it right what's one thing coming up for you in the next 6 months that you're really looking forward to <sighs> <laughs> can shorten the window if you if that's way too much time no this is um 
This is a challenge. This is a challenge. I think I'll I'll say this. This is will be really. My parents are celebrating their fiftieth wedding anniversary um, this November, and we are having a a really once in a lifetime gathering of their friends and their like life experiences, and people will be flying in from France and from Finland and from all over the United States and to celebrate the like connection that they have and the connections that they've had over the course of of their life experience and to see how many different lives have been impacted by by them is just a it's a really amazing and amazing and inspirational um window into potential that's awesome it's gonna be so great I'm really excited about um, that. Yeah. What a fun day. Or days. Or days. Or however long your celebration. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Days. For sure. And then my last question. I had a question, but I don't really like it Um, for you. <laughs> I'll just do it, okay? Let's do it. If I, could, if, I, if, if I was a genie, and but just let's say like I'm not a very powerful genie, mm. and I could make one thing appear right next to you, right now what would it be that seems like a really powerful genie maybe i'm just easily impressed ah one thing that could appear next to me right now would be sakuru that's easy (laughs) and what's that sakuru is uh he is an indian mystic and um he is the most brilliant energy that i have ever had the opportunity to witness um he is really transformative in the way i view the world his his teachings are really transformative in the way i view the world and his ideas have been life shifting for me so to get the opportunity to have him ah I like goosebumps just thinking about that opportunity of him in this room right now. <laughs> oh, that would be the greatest thing ever. Bring me that genie. Love that, of course. Does now does Sakuru have how would you find how would I find more information? Yeah, you can find more information about Sakuru uh at the Isha Foundation. So the Isha Foundation is his foundation, he's focused mostly on India and the United States. Uh, he has ashrams in Tennessee and in southern India. And uh, I really believe that he, I really believe that he has enough like potential energy within him to drastically shift our world for the positive. And man, man, there's just not many people like that. I love it so much. Thank you. Those and are, now, those now are great I've questions. got a robot hole. <laughs> Well, sometimes my question is like, for if I gave you like a hundred dollars, what would you wish could appear next to you? But I like this answer better. Mm. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad because I would have no idea. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, okay, that was that was a beautiful question. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you so much for this opportunity to get to speak with you. Ah, for coming on Becoming Legendary. Have such a lovely rest of your day. I will. Thank you so much, Patrick. I really enjoyed it.